Hi everyone, this is the final episode in our re-release Monday Alopecia Areata series. This is our Patient Perspectives podcast with Crystal and Gracie. Hello and welcome to the final episode in Pedra's Emerging Mechanisms of Action in the Treatment of Moderate to Severe Alopecia Areata. Throughout these series, we've covered the do's and don'ts of clinic visits, we've discussed JAK inhibitors and the outcomes of current research, as well as the psychosocial impacts of the disease. Now we turn to a very special patient family to hear the patient perspective. I'm Jen Dawson, Pedra's Associate Director of Educational Programs, and leading today's interview is Dr. Britt Craiglow. Dr. Craiglow is the Adjunct Associate Professor of Dermatology at Yale and sees patients in private practice in Fairfield, Connecticut. Hello. And sitting down with Dr. Craiglow today is Mother Crystal. Hi there. And her lovely daughter, Gracie. Hey. So at this point, I'd like to turn it over to you, Dr. Craiglow. Thank you guys first so much for participating. We're really excited to have you here. And I, I think we can, as dermatologists, we can read a lot in books and, you know, in articles and listen to presentations and things like that. But, but really and truly, we learn so much from patients and families. And I think this is really important for people in the medical community to hear and to learn from you. So we're really excited to hear your perspective. So maybe you can just start by maybe giving us a little bit of background. Um, you can, you know, sort of your age and anything you like to do, and then maybe sort of um, start in about, you know, when, when you were first diagnosed with alopecia areata. Um, so I'm 13 years old. I'm in eighth grade. Um, so I was first diagnosed with um, alopecia at the end of fifth grade, which would be 2019. And I started losing hair and we weren't really sure what it was. We went to like multiple doctors until we figured out that it was, I don't, I'm not sure who diagnosed me with it. Maybe a dermatologist with alopecia. Yeah. So she, she came to me quite a few times and said, you know, I'm losing hair. And I said, Oh, Grace, that's normal. Like everyone sheds hair. Um, and she's like, no mom, I mean like lots of hair. Like when I'm reading a book, there'll be a pile of hair on my book. And I'm like, well, that's not, you know, normal. But then I started looking at her hair. I pulled up my hair like in a ponytail and like I had lost, um, what's the pattern called? Ophiasis. I had like an ophiasis pattern, like baldness. So it was just like under, um, like the lower part of my scalp, I guess. Yeah. It looked like someone had just shaved off the whole bottom half of her scalp. Um, so we first went to a doctor here locally in Greenville who diagnosed her. And um, I came home to just in my nature, I started researching and of course sort of freaked out about what the future was of alopecia and researched every kind of treatment. And, um, you know, are there remedies? Are there cures? And I asked for another phone call with our local dermatologist. Um, and, you know, I told him I had read studies and he could just tell I was very interested in going beyond, I think he first prescribed like clobidazole and Rogaine and Rogaine did not work well. Clobidazole. What happened to Rogaine? Rogaine, um, I started growing hair like all like my face, my down my neck, my back. My it was not, yeah, it was Rogaine was not working. So anyway, nothing was um was working. And he called back and said that he had he had read about um you, Dr. Craiglow and Dr. King's research and 
they were you know, up and coming treatments of JAK inhibitors and you would be a good person to contact. And so that's what we did. And we came, came to up you. to Connecticut in 2019. So do you remember Gracie, like kind of how you were feeling or what you were thinking during that time? Yeah, it was never, had you ever heard of alopecia areata before? No, no, we hadn't. Um, I don't, I mean, I'd never heard of it. I don't think that my mom had either. Um, I was, it was hard definitely because, you know, I was diagnosed at the end of fifth grade and, uh, probably for the last month of school, I would say I, um, did like after school, like I just, I just came to school after school was over and my fifth grade teacher just kind of went over with me what they had done that day for the last month of school. Because um, you're uncomfortable going. Yes. Yes, ma'am. Um, I, think, I think if I remember correctly, when you guys came, you were like kind of rapidly losing hair. Like it was happening fast. Right. Yeah. And so I think it's important to point out that you had sort of this opiasis pattern then, but then very quickly just started shedding and went on to essentially complete hair loss. Yes. Yeah. Right? After I lost the opiasis pattern, I got a like bald spot, um, right at the front of my scalp. I think it was the right side, like right above my forehead. Yeah. That's when I stopped going to school because there was a, you know, bald spot. When I had the opiasis pattern, I kept going cause you couldn't really like notice, but whenever I got that bald bands. spot there, yeah, I started wearing headbands to volleyball and stuff. Yeah. I, I wanted to shave my head before I even came up to Connecticut to see you, but my mom was like, just wait <laughs> until we go up there. And then I came home and I'm pretty sure I shaved it that weekend. Um, but so, yeah. And then the whole summer I was completely bald with like no regrowth. And then, you know, going into sixth grade, that was definitely hard because, you know, going into sixth grade and wearing a wig isn't an easy thing to do. And then also like having to wake up an hour or an hour and a half earlier every morning to draw on eyebrows or put on eyelashes or whatever also wasn't ideal. And in going into middle school, your first year of middle school, it's difficult because you want you don't want like people to say that your eyebrows look fake or people to know that you're wearing fake eyelashes or whatever or that like most of the times I didn't even wear fake eyelashes I just drew up with eyeliner and you don't want people to notice that you didn't have eyelashes and tell about what it's like to wear a wig because I have a lot of patients who see who you know who've seen providers and they've been told well you can wear a wig what's it actually like to wear a wig like I said, not ideal. It's it, my wig was good and it looked great, has rubber inside of it, which is good because it sticks to your head, but it also gets super hot. And like when you get sweaty and I, like I said, I played volleyball or I play volleyball, you get sweaty and it starts to slide. And, you know, people do notice that you have lace on your forehead, you know, eventually while I was still wearing my wig, at one of my volleyball tournaments, a girl hit a ball and it hit my head and my wig came flying off. So, you know, in front of everyone and that awful. it was awful. So, you know, it's definitely not good and fun, you know, it like, and, and at first when you're like, Oh, I get to wear a wig. It kind of seems like fun. And I mean, parts of it are fun because you can change up your hair, but for the most part, I would, it's not as great. <laughs> yeah. There were girls at school that like, who wear wigs, you know, like in their family, a lot of people wear wigs and they definitely like spotted it immediately and thought she was just wearing a wig to try to be like pretty. extra or pretty or fancy. And 
So she got, you know, made fun of by that group of girls um, until, you know, they, the, the principals brought her in and tried to educate them and say, look, she has a medical condition. And then they did feel awful, but, you know. Yeah, I mean, one of the girls came up to me at lunch and was like, I'm so sorry. I had no idea. So, you know, that was, that was, I think, probably the worst experience, I guess, I had that school year. But, you know, the girls were very, all very sincere in their apologies. And one of them wrote me, a apology letter and one of them came up to me and like apologized to my face so it was you know it was a learning experience for all of them and crystal I mean as a parent watching your child go through this and imagine you feel kind of powerless and what what does it feel like honestly yeah it was the worst experience I mean maybe that says something about how blessed of a life I've had but it was the worst experience of my life you know to have her come out of the shower crying with handfuls of hair in her hand and asking, what do we do? And I am a, a fixer by nature and I want to find a, a fix for it and just felt completely helpless and powerless. And knowing that at that time, based on what I had read, it was going to be forever. You know, there was no like cure for it. It was uncurable. Yeah. There was no medicine for it. I mean, it was just, you really felt helpless. I mean, I think that, you know, it's interesting your comment, you know, it shows what a blessed life you've had. I think because you're not sick, people have you, it's this funny psychology where you almost feel bad that you feel bad or you have to sort of like make these, you know, say, well, it's a sign that I've had, you know, a great life, but, but like, it's awful for everybody, you know? And I think it's, I think that that's something that really people need to understand. And and feel okay about. Like, I think it's really normal for this to be a very hard thing. It's not cosmetic because it is a medical disease. you just want to be normal basically, mm-hmm. but you're not sick. It's not going to put you, land you in the hospital. Right. And so the experience I think is very different in terms of how other people kind of understand it. Like, I think you know, your child has pneumonia or severe asthma or has cancer, everybody is, oh my goodness, you know, what can we do for you? Or, you know, and then when it comes to alopecia I think, you know, certainly there are going to be people who are, who are understanding and supportive, but oftentimes that support comes in, in a way that I think, and correct me if I'm, if you don't feel the same, but I think is like, really unhelpful. Like, it's like, oh, she's still so beautiful. It's just Mm -hmm. hair, you know, all of this, what I kind of feel a sort of toxic positivity around it. And so did you have, like, did you tell your friends, Gracie, or did you tell other people? And if so, how did they respond? And did you have any experiences like that? For sure. The, something that I heard all the time was it's just hair and you know, it, other people have it worse. And I don't think that that's necessarily like a bad mindset, but I, I do. Yes. Yeah, mom told me that, but trying to encourage her to yes. say like, it could always be worse. Um, but I definitely do see how, you know, <laughs> that can make you feel like your issues feel like lesser than, you know what I mean? I told two of my friends as soon as it happened before I even stopped going to school. Um, and then all of my other friends either kind of already knew from, you know, what, however they found out they, most of them already knew. Um, but I, like I told them about it, um, at the beginning of sixth grade. Yeah. I'll just get to go back how quickly it did happen. I mean, I think in around April, um, is when we first really noticing it. And by July, 
um, she had lost all of her hair, 100% of her hair on her head. And then by the beginning of the school year, so I'll say August to September. Well, I had I had my eyebrows and eyelashes when you first started. When I first started sixth grade, and my eyebrows and eyelashes fell out probably a month or two into school. Which this is going to sound crazy, but honestly, like losing my eyebrows and eyelashes for me was worse worse than my hair because of what I said you know you it's I feel like hair is easier to make it not noticeable the my wig like I said was great and you know you could if you really looked you could tell it wasn't mine but you know with drawing on eyebrows and not having eyelashes I think that's a lot harder than putting on a wig yeah she said if she had to lose anything again she'd rather lose her hair and keep her eyelashes and eyebrows just because you can fix it and she would I mean she was pretty brave about going out without a wig she got to that point but to go back to what you said it always has resonated with me when we came to the appointment with you and you you said that not to diminish it because it's not just hair it's like you know affects your whole life and you said the difference between you and a person with cancer is yes, cancer is awful, but they have a way to fight it and they have a game plan and they know, you know, like, let's go take this and fight it. Whereas alopecia at the time, I mean, I know that's changing, but you know what, there was no real game plan to a guaranteed fix for it. And there's not to cancer either, but you know what I'm saying? Just not a treatment, like the same plan. And it really stuck with me. And so, so speaking of treatment, tell us why it's important to treat it or why it was important for you to seek treatment? Being 12 years old at the time, I guess, um, going into middle school, I think it was really important to me to have hair just because every, I mean, you know when I mean? I mean, I, I don't know how to say this, it's, but just to be normal and to look normal, how everyone else looks. And I mean, that's just what I wanted, I guess. That's just yeah. really. I think for me, it was a little bit different um, of a thought process. I mean, it's your kid and you don't want your child to be on medicine for the rest of their life. But at the same time, I was trying to balance and weigh the quality of life that she'll have without hair with, you know, what are the possible side effects and risks of, of taking the medicine And, um, you know, I just read as much as I could and I talked to as many health professionals as I could, dermatologists like yourself. And um, I basically said, if this was your child, what would you do? Because I always feel like, you know, if you would put your child on it, the person you love more than anything, then it should be good enough for mine. Um, And then I talked to Gracie about like, these are the side effects that it says, and you know, it can lower your immune system and it can, which your immune system can help you fight cancers and stuff. I mean, there's a lot of, you know, serious side effects. But again, just prayerfully, we decided that it was best to to give it a try. And I said, even if it gives her hair for a year or two, that's a year or two of her life that she's going to have it and not to have to deal with, you know, no hair. We talk about this a a lot in dermatology and that a lot of things we see aren't, aren't necessarily life-threatening, but they're kind of quality of life threatening. Right. And, And I do think that alopecia areata is something that for many people can really has a potential to kind of alter one's trajectory. Right. And I think that's kind of what you're saying about Gracie is like, you wanted her to live her life as she would with hair to live the life that she's kind of meant to live. Right. And, and I think, you know, the, the risk piece is important, I think to talk about because, you know, medicines, all medicines have risks, but the medicines that are, um, you know, being used now, 
uh, for alopecia areata do have some serious risks and, and it's something, you know, that we need to weigh and, um, to talk about how much did that kind of play into your decision? Like, did, did you have a lot of concern about risk or were you sort of more just like, this is really important. You know, we've got to do what we've got to do. Um, I think, I mean, the risks definitely are important and I still question, um, am I making the right decision? She gets sick out of my five kids. She's always the first to get sick at our house. We've had, you know, COVID through our house twice. And she was the one, well, the first time only she got it, but she was the one who got it first. The thought of her as she gets older and is aging and a lowered immune system scares me as well. And, you know, I've questioned, she handled it so extremely well, honestly, when she lost her hair. That's what I was going to go I think what you're about to say is the doctor who we're going to see in Florida who's kind of in charge I guess of the clinical trial he has said that whenever you get pregnant you'll have to go off of the medicine and you know if you like get if for any reason I need to go off of the medicine and I lose my hair again I like just like thinking forward to it I feel like this time I, I don't know why but I feel like I would be more upset which is kind of scary but I don't know. I mean, it's just pregnancy by itself, I assume is hard. (laughs) So, you know, going through that and losing your hair at the same time, if I have to go off that medicine, it's not something I look forward to. Yeah. So I've questioned like, am I doing her a a disfavor by um, letting her have hair? And then at some point, if she loses it again, when she's older and doesn't handle it as well, you know, there's just a lot of mom guilt that you can like, you constantly don't know you're second guessing. Am I making the right decision for her? Mm-hmm. Um, and with her, I mean, she's, she's been in these decision-making processes. I know she is only 11 or 12, but she's pretty mature and can understand, but it's, yeah, it's definitely the risk have weighed heavily. Yeah. I mean, I think your point, Gracie is it's really interesting. I do think there is, there can be an element of almost like PTSD for, you know, a lot of people who have alopecia areata have, you know, more sort of these episodes, you know, where maybe they don't lose everything, but they get extensive patches and then it regrows maybe with or without treatment and they're better, but I think it's always sort of like in the back of your mind, you know, when is this going to happen again? Right. Like every morning kind of checking the pillow, checking your scalp, you know, I completely understand that. And I've seen that with so many patients. And I think it's like, you know, now you know how awful it felt. Right. And so Mm-hmm. it's not like going into something that's unknown. Now, now you've had that really terrible experience. And the, I think the idea of kind of like redoing it is, you know, that's scary. What do you think? I mean, did you have any experiences with any healthcare providers where you like sometimes people with alopecia areata, I think feel like they're, they feel a little bit dismissed in that, you know, they're, told it's just hair or they can get a wig or they kind of feel like their experience is minimized. Did, did you have that happen at all? Yeah, I think for the most part, everyone was super sincere and like cared. Um, I think, I guess if I had to say one thing, I guess it would be um, when we were making appeals to insurance and they called it a cosmetic, like, you, you know what I'm, isn't that what they like? It was. Final. I don't know if they said it, but they made you feel like it. It was not justified, and it was for cosmetic purposes. Which and so was- for that, I mean, I can. When I did that third appeal, like I got letters. Okay, so I went to like her guidance counselor, and 
to people from church and my teacher, her teacher. And I wrote a letter and just her principal, anyone that my has seen the effect on her and compiled all those letters. And I compiled pictures and obviously letters from you, Dr. Craiglow, her dermatologist here, her pediatrician here, just everyone saying like, this isn't just here. I mean, it affects everything about her. And if, if the data and the studies are showing that it works, then let her, let her try it. And so it did get reversed on the third time, which is, it felt like a huge victory. You know, we never did it, but yeah. Yeah. It was, it was kind of like when we got the letter in the mail, in the mail saying that it had been approved and we were already in the trial, we were like, oh, well, shoot. (laughs) But tell us what it's like to be in a clinical trial. Um, because for sure in alopecia areata, that's, you know, that if we're, if there are going to be medicines that get approved, people need to take them in clinical trials. Right. So, um, I think it's definitely an interesting perspective and and something that, you know, we want to know about. We started going to this clinical trial in Tampa, uh, I guess, when was it? November, November of 2019 for six months. I, um, got the sugar pill, which we didn't know what I was getting for all we knew. It could have been the medicine and the medicine wasn't working on me. The doctors didn't know what I was getting. Um, but then after the first six months, they gave me something else and it was, I guess the medicine because my hair grew back and I I like the clinical trial. I (laughs) I mean, it's a, I'm proud of her for being, so she had a fear sort of of needles and getting shots before we started this. And, um, it's been a big time and financial commitment from our family because at the beginning you can go every two weeks, four weeks, six weeks, and then it stretches out to eight. Now it's like a few months. So now we're in phase two of that trial. So it's every three months. Um, but when we go down most of the time, I think every time she gets blood work done, obviously photographs, occasionally audiology, but she's gotten so used to the blood work and everything. She's just very brave. And I don't know that if she realizes the magnitude of what she's doing by participating and how important this is for so many other people and um, really offering in a way her body. Now, as a mom, obviously I felt comfortable with the safety of the drug before I enrolled her. I don't want her just to be a guinea pig, but, um, you know, she's, she's been really brave and I'm actually very proud of her for, and we've had really, it's really been a good bonding time, honestly, for us. Um, yeah, I mean, we, we've made trips out of it before we've taken my little sisters and grandparents down there and we've gone to Disney world while we're down there. So it's been, you know, it's been fun. (laughs) You are making a huge contribution. Um, and it is obviously, fortunately, it's been beneficial to you, but it is a, in a way, you know, a very selfless thing, I think, to do. Um, other people most likely are, are going to benefit from, you know, from your willingness to participate and your bravery and all that it's because it is a big deal. It's not just hair. It is a very, you know, it's part of who you are. What did it feel like when your hair started coming back in? It was great. I mean, I was thrilled. I was at the time. I was like, oh, I look like a boy because I had a boy's hair. You know, I look like a little boy, but kind of like, well, I'm glad I have hair, but I wish I didn't look like a boy. But now looking back, honestly, my hair was kind of cute. It was super cute. Before your hair started coming back and where, when you were wearing your wig and having to draw on your eyebrows and eyelashes, how many times a day do you think you thought about it? Um, I think, I mean, I definitely thought about it in the mornings when I was up like crying, (laughs) trying to draw on my eyebrows so that they looked real and they looked like I had eyebrows. Um, 
And I definitely thought throughout the school day, I wonder if they're like looking at my eyelashes. I wonder if they're looking at my eyebrows, like whenever I would be talking to people. And I, I definitely think that times at times people were. So, you know, I, I think I thought about it a good bit um, just being at school. And I mean, I know I would come home and tell mom, like when I'm talking to people, they just like look at me right here because they're like trying to kind of look like, is she wearing a wig? Like, is that lace that I see on her forehead? Or even her friends that were friends of hers would be like, Grace, your eyebrows aren't the same today. Not even in a mean way, but just in a sixth grade, you know, girls blurting out what they're thinking or your eyebrows don't look real today or something. And you're just like, oh, as a mom, you know, like why? And they're not even being mean girls. Um, Yeah, those are not the mean girls. No, it's just, and I think, I mean, as her mom, I can tell you, I thought about it all day, every day. I mean, literally I would, think about it all day. I've never cried so much in my entire life. And I would stay up all night reading and researching and just like, I've got to find an answer. I mean, it was awful. It's easy for somebody who hasn't been through this to, you know, to kind of say, oh, just wear a wig. Oh, you can just draw it on. But it's not that easy. Number one, it's not comfortable. But number two, it isn't quite your real hair, you know, it's not quite there. And I think it's very distracting. um, Also, because you're kind of I have a lot of patients who I think who, you know, they're like afraid that the wind's going to blow, right? If they're maybe not wearing a wig, but they're putting their hair in a certain way to kind of cover their patches, like little kind of everyday things that we take for granted, like we can go swimming, no problem. You know, if you have a Mm -hmm. wig, like swimming is kind of tough. I've missed so many events with my friends just because you can't really sleep in a wig or you're going to wake up and your part's going to be over here (laughs) or, you know, you can't swim in a wig because you just can't. I mean, yeah, it's definitely in that way taken a toll. Say you met a, a kid tomorrow who's just diagnosed with alopecia areata or who's going through it, who maybe is your age or an element, you know, the age you were when it happened, what would you want them to know? People aren't really thinking about it as much as you think they are. I think I know a lot of times I would constantly think, oh, they're probably like thinking about that right now. They're probably looking at me. They weren't. They like (laughs) they I think I thought that people cared about it a lot more than they did. How about you, Crystal, to like to a parent? Yeah, I think just um, it's going to be okay. You're going to be okay, and your child's going to be okay. And this isn't the end of the world, even though it feels like it's legitimately the end of the world. Honestly, the way that I did get through it is I tried to find the good things. So I would give thanks that she wasn't sick in a way that caused her to feel bad, you know, like physically bad. And I would give thanks that she didn't have a terminal illness or that's just the way I approach everything in life is everything could be worse. No matter what it is, it could always be worse. So they'll be okay. Kids are way more resilient than we can ever imagine. And they bounce back and handle it probably with more ease than the parents can. So, um, and give yourself a break. And I think, you know, you are kind of proof that, that there actually is hope. Right. (laughs) Um, and I think that's, what's kind of different now from, you know, even five years ago. So like for me, when I see a really young child, it may not be the right time, you know, to put them on, on, treatment that's maybe likely to be effective, but, but to be able to say to their families, like, look, there, there are, there is this class of medicines that has a lot of promise and there may be an approved therapy in, in some period of time. You know, I think that having hope is, is really huge. Right. And you kind of talked about the beginning, Crystal, like when you're reading, you're feeling like, oh my God, this is forever. 
you know, like this is it, like it's not coming back. Right. And I think for people with severe disease, that is how we kind of used to think about it. every so often, maybe we would get lucky, but there wasn't anything that was reliably effective. Whereas now the story is changing. Right. Um, and thanks to people like you, Gracie, who are involved in these things and to science and we're, we're reaching a point where this isn't necessarily a disease that people have to live with. Right. Um, so that I think, especially for patients who are newly diagnosed or, or even who've been living with it, right. That can, I think, kind of change perspective and, and make things maybe a little bit more kind of palatable. So, so you're growing hair. Uh, the people listening can't see you. I can, I can see you right now, but, um, why don't you tell folks about kind of what the regrowth has been like? When did, what did you notice at first? Was it, did it come in kind of uniformly that kind of thing? Um, so I had regrowth, I guess. I mean, it was as soon as I got on the medicine, I would say probably a week later, I started noticing, or maybe couple of weeks. Yeah. A couple of weeks later, I started noticing regrowth. Now my hair before it fell out was brown. It was light brown. And when my hair grew back after being on this medicine, it was like white, like very, 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 very light blonde up until the length of like a buzz cut. It was blonde. And then it started to get super dark, darker than my hair was before it fell out, which is, you know, it went from like way lighter than what my hair was before it fell out to dark, dark brown with and white tips. with white tips. Yeah. I mean, it was, I was Corella DeVille. <laughs> it was growing back curly, which another thing, like my hair was straight, like as a stick straight, like no wave to it at all. And I mean, it was growing back like ringlets curly. So now it's about the length of to your shoulders. The longest hair is to my shoulders and my shortest is, to I don't ear. know how to describe it to my ear. Yeah. So I have like ringlets in the back. I have to straighten it. And if I want it straight and if not, I have to straighten my curly pieces like of my natural hair and then curl, I have extensions and then curl the rest of it. But I mean, it's, it's crazy to see it grow back. And, and so when it came in, it was uniform, like it was all over. Um, and she got her eyelashes and eyebrows back, her arm hair, everything that had gone leg hair. So now she has to shave, which I was like, that's actually a blessing of alopecia. So <laughs> that's what you can tell a parent is. Be I always joke that if we could localize it, I think sometimes when it starts to grow in people, there's this like cautious optimism, right? Like you're so excited, but you don't want to get too excited because what if it's not for real? Or what if you definitely. go backwards? Yes. That's definitely one of like the biggest things that we were like, oh, this is great, but don't get too yeah. happy yet. I always you know tried I mean? to, I'm a little bit of a pessimist. So I'd always say like, don't get too excited just in case, you know, like keep your mind always on the side of it's okay if you have alopecia. Go, going back to how my hair grew back, when it grew back, it was like my mom said, very uniform. Like it was, I didn't have any bald spots. I didn't have any, I mean, it was completely all over my head and re, not recently, but as it got longer, I started to form that ophiasis pattern again. And um, I also have a bald spot like at the very uh, right above my forehead on the left side. So it's the same way as when um, she first lost it. It's like, which is crazy. Mm-hmm. So yeah, right now I have an ophiasis pattern. But not as bad. Like I did when I first was losing hair and a bald spot um, right above the left side of my forehead. I'll have like a bald spot pop up and then it'll grow back in and then I'll have another one pop up and then it'll grow back in. 
But the opiaceous pattern is not going anywhere apparently because I have no regrowth there, but. Yeah, it's still smooth. Um, the, the back part did come in, but it's a little bit splotchy. When you, when you got those first couple of patches after having it come in uniformly, what was that like? I guess I didn't really notice until it was, I mean, gone. gone. Yeah, so. Did it make you like nervous or scared or like? Do you just sort of take it in stride? It, it makes me nervous that I'm going to have more fallout, but um, it makes me happy, I guess, that, that those are the only spots I'm losing. It. I'm not losing it all over. I'm just losing it in those certain spots. You know, it's not uncommon for people to develop patches while on the medicine. And I think though sometimes when that first happens, it's like can send somebody kind of into a panic or a tailspin. And I've started now telling patients and families that, look, I sort of view these medicines as taking people from severe to mild. I think for me, it stressed me out when I saw them. Like I said, I still check her here and she's almost like, mom, please. Like, cause I just think about it, I think more than she does. But um, when she started to lose, like I had to start deciding, do I leave her in the trial? Do I pull her out? Like, is it worth her being on the medicine if her hair is falling out? As a dermatologist, I think a lot of, you know, a lot of people sort of shy away from treating hair loss because it is difficult. It takes more time. Um, but for me, like some of the most meaningful relationships I have with, you know, patients and families are patients who have alopecia areata. And look, we've only met once in person, right? <laughs> but we, we've been in touch and communicated. And, um, you know, I immediately thought of you guys for this. And um, it was really special to have you and um, Gracie, you're just like so poised and mature and incredible, incredible you. kid, um, just really and truly. Um, and I, I think you, you know, your, your story is like, it's inspiring. Um, and I think hopefully, you know, in the end, this was not something that you would wish upon your worst enemy. Right. But there will be some things that you take from the experience that I think you'll, that will change the way you interact with the world, probably in in a way that that impacts people positively right in terms of yeah maybe that's what i told her she was, i feel like she was picked like for this and this is her story and she's gonna change people's lives because of it well i cannot think of a better way to round out this six-part series than on that note a very special thank you to our patient family crystal and gracie for joining us and sharing their story it's so very important and we so very appreciate them also, a very special thank you to our program chairs, Dr. Britt Craiglow and Dr. Leslie Castello-Socio. They have been incredible in putting together this six-part series. I would also like to thank Pfizer for supporting this program with a grant. Vidra is solely responsible for the content in this program. You can listen to the entirety of this series on demand in the Pedra Pearls podcast channel, available on iTunes and Google Play. Make sure to leave us a comment and tell us how we're doing. For other information on PEDRA's educational activities, be sure to visit www.pedraresearch.org. This series was produced and edited by me, Jen Dawson, and PEDRA's Executive Director, Mike Siegel. For questions about this program or any other educational content PEDRA is producing, please email us at info at Thanks for listening.